Unexplainable is a science show about everything we don't know. Like, we don't know how bikes work. Get out. Come on. We don't know where the moon came from. Holy cow. You've touched the moon. This is incredible. We don't even know what life is. No one has been able to define life, and some people will tell you it's not possible to. Unexplainable takes you right up to the edge of what we know and keeps going. New episodes every Wednesday, wherever you get your podcasts. Olivia here. I want to tell you about a new podcast from Axios called One Big Thing. It's hosted by Nyla Budu and features interviews with leaders you know or need to know in business, politics, and culture. Each week, you'll hear one big conversation on the trends shaping our world from people like Surgeon General Vivek Murthy, technology reporter Ina Freed, and chef and humanitarian Jose Andres. So go ahead, listen to One Big Thing on your favorite podcast app. New episodes drop every Thursday. Hello and welcome to BioEats World, a podcast perched at the intersection of bio and tech. I'm Lauren Richardson, scientist and former senior editor of PLOS Biology. And today's episode is a little bit different. It's a journal club, but instead of discussing the results and implication of one article from the scientific literature, we're covering three related articles, all co-published recently in Science. I'm joined by Judy Savitskaya, an A16Z BioDeal team member and synthetic biology expert, to talk through these papers, which all advance our understanding of a very unique kind of DNA. So here's what's cool about this. If you open any biology textbook, it will say that the genetic code is made up of four bases, adenine, thymine, cytosine, and guanine, or ATCG. But back in 1977, scientists discovered a phage, which is just a fancy way of saying a virus that infects bacteria that encodes its genome in ZTCG. Z is a derivative of A that has an extra amino group tagged on. And while that may sound minor, it changes some of the key properties of DNA. These three new articles, which we refer to as Zhao et al., Slyman et al., and Pezo et al., seek to understand how Z is made and how it is incorporated into DNA. This is essential information for taking Z from a weird, wild bio story to a practical application, some of which we discuss towards the end of the episode. But our conversation starts with a disagreement between Judy and I as to how truly weird Z is. So the only thing that's weird about Z is that we don't see it in any of the organisms that we regularly interact with. But other than that, it's just a normal base. No, it's not. It just has an extra amine group. No, no way. Z violates Watson-Crick binding. In the sense that it has three hydrogen bonds with T. Exactly, exactly. There are all these different non-canonical bases that bacteria and viruses use um, for various purposes, but Z is the only one that actually violates one of the things that we consider to be like the foundation of biochemistry, which is that guanine and cytosine form three bonds, adenine and thymine form two bonds. I feel like that's not that big of a deal. I think it's a big deal because <laughs> it's like we only have like so okay. many rules in biology. This is so fascinating because I feel like that's like a, for me, that's just like a chemistry detail. But like, mm. I think the the really, the interesting thing about non-canonical bases to me is that like, why don't we see more of them? Like, there's so many organisms that like, it is weird that there's not a bunch of other 
bases that are binding in all different ways. So yeah, I guess my perspective is like, none of it's weird. And your perspective is like, (laughs) it's so weird. Yeah. The fact that it has these three hydrogen bonds, like that will actually change some of the physics of the DNA. You're actually making it what? 1.5 X stronger. So like if you need to unzip the DNA for expression or you unzip it for replication, now it should be theoretically harder to unzip. Yeah, no, that that bears out in experiments of ZDNA. And ZDNA has increased thermal stability. So it's more stable at higher temperatures. Because of that third bond, it has more sequence specificity. So a single strand of ZDNA can more accurately bind to its complement than one Mm -hmm. with an A. It it also makes the DNA more rigid and have more force stability. So that extra hydrogen bond does like alter the properties of the DNA in ways that we just don't see outside of this, like this, what we thought was just one phage. And the fact that we see the Z genome in phage explains kind of why an organism would want to have a different genome. You know, the sole function of phage is to inject its genome into bacteria to then force the bacteria to express its genome and then bust that bacteria open and go on to infect other bacteria. And so bacteria have developed this arsenal of nucleases that can go and cut up foreign DNA. And so the nucleases hone to a specific sequence. And if that sequence has an A in it, uh, it, those nucleases just can't cut. So this, that's a huge advantage to this family of phage in that their genomes are resistant to all of these mechanisms that are trying to chop it up. So, Judy, we've talked about why Z is cool, what's different about it, you know, and how it changes the properties of DNA. But what are they specifically looking at in these papers? Yeah, so these papers are concerned with how is Z actually made? What are the pathways that are making it? And then also the way that the DNA polymer is constructed is a big question, right? Why does the native DNA like construction machinery in the host cell end up incorporating Zs? Does the phage DNA construction machinery incorporate As? That's a really important question to understand how that how this thing works and can we actually isolate it completely? Yes. So Let's start with how Z is made. Both Zhao et al. and Sliman et al. are looking at how Z gets made. So they identify this protein that's encoded in the phage genome called pure Z. And then the pure Z, which is a homologue of a pretty common bacterial protein called pure A, which is involved in adenine biosynthesis. And then they figure out that pure Z is catalyzing this first essential reaction in creating Z. And then the phage uses the host enzymes to catalyze the subsequent stages. So it's really just that one first reaction that's necessary to create Z as opposed to A. So some of the things that I thought were particularly interesting in these two papers was the differences in methods. Zhao et al. uses like these really classic biochemistry assays that reminded me of my undergrad classes. Like I haven't seen people talk about Michaelis-Menten dynamics in a very long time. And then Simon et al., they do structural biology to really demonstrate how this enzyme is able to catalyze this reaction. And I think one of the interesting differentiations between the two papers 
was that uh, Zhao et al. identified a few additional proteins that are encoded in this Z genome. And the one that they talk the most about is this ATPase, DATPase. So what do they hypothesize is the role of that and the importance of that? Yeah. So you have to remember this phage is going to be inside of the host environment. So there's tons of adenines around. And so if the phage needs to only incorporate Z into its genome, one thing that it can do to speed that up is actually just get rid of all the adenine. And then the Zs are not competing with adenine for incorporation into the phage genome. I think it's interesting that it hints at multiple mechanisms through which the integrity of the Z genome is maintained. So let's go to that third paper, which is distinct from the previous two. Instead of looking at how Z is made, it's how Z is incorporated into the Z genome. And they first looked at this genome of the phage that Z was originally identified in, and they didn't find a gene that looked like a DNA polymerase. So they looked, they again used this pure Z, this enzyme that's essential for the first step of Z biosynthesis. And they did, you know, they looked in all these metagenomes and they said, who else has pure Z? And then they looked at those genomes. And in those genomes, they found a polymerase that coexists frequently with pure Z. So they said, oh, this is probably the polymerase. But they never solved the problem of what was happening in that. Yeah, why <laughs> yeah. isn't it? An Where, yeah, what's happening yeah, there? Yeah, totally. It's like one of those things that, like, it, you make a discovery, but the organism that you're you originally identified is actually maybe like the worst possible version to it's be looking exception. at because it's yeah. yeah, it's like way out there on like the evolutionary tree and has its own weirdness about it. That's kind of like E. coli and, and gut microbiome. Like they're just actually not that common. Like it's kind of a incidental thing that that's the organism we ended up using for everything. So they looked for DNA polymerases in the other organisms and that's how they discovered material that they could start working on. It, it must be that the original organism S2L is using the host polymerase to incorporate these um, because there, there has to be a polymerase somewhere in there. And so I think that's actually a really cool thing that maybe their next paper will dig into is you know, how is it able to discriminate between Zs and As when it's the same polymerase? It's much more straightforward when it's an entirely different protein. Did we just answer our previous question of like that, that remember we were just talking about that, uh, that ATPase that's breaking down As and making sure there's no A around. But if it's using the bacterial polymerase, then it would have to get rid of the As or else it would incorporate As into its genome. Maybe that's how S2L gets around not having a polymerase is it uses a bacterial polymerase, but it first gets rid of all of the A's so that there's only uh, Z around. That makes a lot of sense. But those hydrolases are also in the other phages. Mm, mm-hmm. so, so maybe what it is, is like, we're seeing an evolutionary path here where like, mm-hmm. you know, originally the answer was hydrolases, like nuke all the A's and that's how you get Z's into your phage genome. And then over time, like maybe there was a copy of, of a polymerase and then it was able to evolve. And so now the hydrolases are like the vestigial components of the, of the phage genomes. Huh, that'd be cool. That's not in paper, but. But this is a journal club. You know, we're talking, we're talking through the paper. Okay. So in these non-S2L phages that have pure Z and they have this homolog of Paul-A, Paul-A is what it's called in E. coli, known as DPOZ. So how did they characterize DPOZ and, and, and show that this is how uh, Z is incorporated? Yeah. So they 
purified DPOZ to do an in vitro experiment. And then they mixed it with different nucleotides to see if they could get replication of a DNA template. And the specific template that they used in this case, I'm pretty sure was a 24 base run of T's. And so if the polymerase is working correctly, you should get all Z's, mm-hmm. which is what they saw from DPOZ. Yeah, this paper, in addition to to identifying DPOZ and and showing that it is able to incorporate Z, it also did some additional evolutionary studies that I thought made some cool insights. And all three papers show that there are phage genomes that include the Z nucleotide that infect a lot of different kinds of bacteria. And so the the hypothesis is that Z originated before those different bacterial families split up, which puts it at about 3.5 billion years old, which is uh, extremely old <laughs> in the origin of life. And so it's, it's kind of interesting that it has survived this long in terms of like everything else is ATCG coded, but it's also very strange that it's so restricted to this one class of phage. And, you know, I would think that either it would get wiped out or it would be more frequent. That's what's surprising to me. So we've talked about how Z is made. We've talked about how Z is incorporated into DNA, and we've talked about the evolutionary context for Z. But that is all a very cool bio story. And I love a cool bio story. But what made me want to talk about this bio story on this podcast is its possible applications and its possible uses, because there are some very cool things uh, that we could do either with Z or something like Z. So Judy, uh, let's just start off. What is your favorite possible application of Z? I really love this concept of biocontainment. Let's say we want to use a bacterium to clean up an oil spill. You want it to be able to you know, go out into a very large area and and do whatever it's going to do, but you don't want it to then replicate independently in the ocean and become an invasive species. So here's an opportunity where if you grow that bacteria in a contained environment where you give it the juice it needs, which is these Z bases as an example, or like a non-canonical amino acid as another example, once it's out in an environment it basically has like a limited amount of time in which it's going to be doing whatever metabolism it naturally does, and then it will die. And there's no way for that organism to replicate. Yeah. The the issue with escape, I think is, is an important one because, you know, you're not just afraid of the organisms themselves replicating and spreading. You're also afraid of the genes disseminating because bacteria, and especially if it's if there's a phage involved, that's like gene transfer city. So if you're using Z, that actually can prevent the spread of those genes throughout a, a broader population because they just won't, they won't be able to spread into new hosts because they don't have the machinery to to read them or use them. That's an excellent point. A really interesting use case is for IP protection, which is, we had a really cool project about this in my PhD, where the question was like, come up with a system where only you can use an organism that you design to produce a thing. If someone steal, you know, somebody walks into your bioreactor facility and they like take a Q-tip and they just swab your bioreactor. They can't then go grow that organism because today the way that biology is like, you can just replicate something and somebody else is done. 
And, you know, there's patents, but that's not real protection in the way that, you know, a physical protection could be. So if your organism survives only because of some really unique uh, component that you're adding into it, then unless another group knows what that component is, there's no way that they'll be able to grow their org- your organism in their labs. And what's really interesting about this is that sequencing is not going to tell you that you've, you've got this going on, right? Most sequencing is done by synthesis. As we know, you can incorporate a T across from a Z. Then in your sequencing reaction, you're just going to read all the Zs as A's because there's mm-hmm. going to be T's on the other side. So you need like special types of sequencing, like for example, nanopore, which one of these papers uses. So if somebody's stolen your stuff and they sequence it, they're highly unlikely to figure out that you have a special nucleotide in there. The application that I like is new therapeutics. People are really interested in in injecting genetic material to either uh, block expression of certain genes or promote expressions of certain genes or encode entirely new genes uh, to act as therapeutics. But those nucleic acids that they want to drug get degraded by cells. They are not stable. They have all these different challenges with getting them to the tissue of interest. And so by coding them with something like a Z nucleotide, we you know i we mentioned at the beginning that these are more stable thermally stable they are entirely resistant to any um nuclease that um that's recognition site includes an a so they aren't going to get broken down by the enzymes in your body and uh and they have that in, uh enhanced sequence specificity so they're more likely to have an on target effect as opposed to an off target effect so i think that that Um, that speaks to a lot of potential use in things like cell and gene therapies. Yeah. And I think that that's another reason this research is really important into understanding exactly how these non-canonical bases are made and how they're incorporated. Because today, these groups that are making mRNA vaccines, you know, same with the ASOs and and the siRNA companies, they're already using modified bases. And if you know how the, the, Bases that are non-canonical are incorporated during replication, that's a much cheaper path. Just like having one step where you have the base and its modification added into the DNA or RNA rather than going through chemical modification that comes, you know, following synthesis of whatever the, the product is. Mm-hmm. And, and today, you know, in some cases, these bases are incorporated, the non-canonical bases are incorporated at the time of synthesis, but the limiting factor there is whether or not the polymerases that they're using are able to take those bases. And so in some cases they are, in some cases they're not. And so that's going to limit the design space for your modifications, unless you then go the expensive post-synthesis chemical route. You know, when it comes to manufacturing, anything that you can do in one step instead of two steps is generally better. Definitely. And then one more intriguing application is that you could use this for DNA storage. So the ZT bond is stronger, which presumably will mean that it will last longer. Yeah, I was going to bring up the the DNA-based archiving because that seems like one where, since that's already like a fully in vitro system, like it would be easier to incorporate the, the benefits of the Z nucleotide. All of these different applications are really exciting, and I can't wait to see what happens with Z-based research. But there are some key open questions. What were some of the other questions about Z that you were interested in? Yeah. One really cool experiment to do would be to put DPOZ into any organism, actually, and the pathway to Z. 
take out the pathway to A and just see if you can just see if it grows, right? Like maybe it's maybe Z and A are close enough that the cell will just incorporate it. Yeah, that is that is one of the potential hindrances to making a lot of these Z-based technologies work is that all those DNA interacting proteins would have to be able to accommodate Z. And usually proteins are pretty specific. And especially because uh, Z DNA has, you know, a number of different properties to it, that that might actually be pretty hard to translate, both in the like literal sense of, of DNA translation and the translating as in like, you know, an idea into a product. Actually, I think more might be hidden within these phage genomes because if there's if the physical nature of Z DNA is really different from regular DNA enough that like, you know, a, a regular helicase doesn't work on it because it's too tightly bound or like the error proneness of polymerases changes. Like I think if that was the case, we would see proteins in that come along with the pure Z and the rest of the phage DNA to account for that. And so the fact that like, at least in these papers, they didn't identify any, you know, any other proteins that bind DNA maybe means that the physical differences are not that big, Mm -hmm, but mm -hmm. you know, it's, it's hard to tell without the full experiment. So one of the things that really struck me about these papers and one of the big open questions is like, they don't know what's happening with RNA. (laughs) They don't know if you have a Z genome, does that incorporate, do you have Z RNA? Can the RNA transcription machinery operate the same way off of Z genomes? That's like a big open question. Yeah, we don't know anything about RNA. Yeah. So confusing. Okay. Well, Judy, thank you for joining me on Journal Club today. I uh, always love to nerd out with you. Thanks, Lauren. And that's it for BioEats World this week. BioEats World is hosted, produced, and edited by me, Lauren Richardson, with the help from the A16Z bio team and Seven Morris, and is part of the A16Z podcast network. If you've got questions about this episode or want to suggest a topic for a future episode, please email bioeatsworld, that's one word, at a16z.com. And last but not least, if you're enjoying BioEats World, please leave us a rating and review wherever you listen to podcasts. 